Hi, you're listening to Conversations with Musicians with Leah Roseman. In episode six, season one, I spoke with violinist Veronica Thomas about her unique and interesting childhood and the work she's doing now with the Centre Préville, this Préville Art Centre in Montreal, and their unique online offerings, the outreach they're doing with remote Indigenous communities, and her perspectives on her life in music. All of these interviews are available in video form. The link is in the description. Please follow this podcast so you can find out about new episodes. I talk to a wide range of musicians about their lives in music. Hello, Veronica Thomas. Welcome to Conversations with Leah. I'm so excited you're here and I have so many questions. Veronica is a violinist and educator, and most recently she's taken over the directorship of the Centre Préville in Montreal. So that was started by your mom, and I want to talk quite a bit about that, as well as your upbringing and all kinds of uh, other music and violin stuff. So tell us about how your, your mom got this centre started and the legacy. Sure. Okay, so it's, it's an interesting story. My mom was an opera singer. She was born in Winnipeg. And she came from quite a musical family. She had a lot of her siblings were very musical. She was a bit of a rebel and she left home very young to study voice in Europe. She went to London. I believe she was 18 or 19 years old. So at that time, that was, that was quite unheard of, but she wanted to get out. She wanted to uh, get out and visit the world. So she studied in London and then she was recruited to the Glyndebourne Opera Company. So I don't know if you know, Glyndebourne was, is quite well known. Mm, it's, yes. in, uh, it's in Wales. And she was touring around with the Glyndebourne Opera Company and she met my dad, who is a Welshman. And they fell in love. And soon after that, she... Um, decided that she wanted to come study in Montreal a little bit. So they moved to Montreal together. And very soon after their marriage, they started having children. So they had five children in quick succession. And my mom was actually at that time a stay at home mom because she had tried to get into the opera scene in Montreal, but it was difficult. It was a bit cliquey. It was, it was not easy for her to make the right connections. So she was a stay-at-home mom and she was, she always had a side of her that was an activist. So she, you know, started working a little bit with the school board. She was actually responsible for one of the three women who were responsible for the first um, French uh, immersion programs here in Quebec. So let's say when I was, we, you know, we had, uh, when I was a kid, we had piano lessons. We had a piano teacher coming to our place to teach all five of us. Mm -hmm. And, you know, we were kind of involved in whatever, you know, cultural activities were around, but they were few and far between. We were living on the South shore of Montreal, which where I still live. And it, you know, it was kind of a barren wasteland for cultural education. So she said, I'm going to start a program. Mm -hmm. I have friends. I know of people who would be great teachers. So her idea was um, to use the public schools. Okay. 
she said, look, these public schools, it's the taxpayer who are paying for them. They're not being used on weekends. They're not being used during the week after school. So they should allow us to use these premises for free. We're going to come in on a Saturday. We're going to open this up to the community. We're going to have all kinds of teachers from around that I'm going to recruit. And that's how it started. And the reason it's called the Preville Fine Arts Center is because we started at Preville School, which was our elementary school. So it started in 1974. I was eight years old, so you can do the math. <laughs> Forget how old I am now. And uh, it grew really, really quickly. So within the first two years, it just blew up. And we actually had to change location to go to a nearby Sejep because we had, I think, over a thousand students in the third or fourth year of, of running this wow. program. So was it mostly so, music at that point? It was that? mostly, no, not only music. That's why it's called the fine arts. So it was mm -hmm. a lot of music, but there was also art, mm -hmm. uh, visual arts. There was dance, there was theater. So what her idea was, was a kind of one-stop place mm -hmm. for families to come. So let's say your little boy wanted to take an art class and your daughter wanted to take a piano class and the mother wanted to sing in a choir and the dad wanted to, I don't know, learn electric guitar or something. There would be something for everybody, right? And the idea was that the family would come together and spend the whole day there and then, you know, partake in all kinds of cultural activities. So when did you start taking violin? Was it through the center? It was through the center. So I had taken piano before that. Mm -hmm. And when the center started, my mom basically said to the five of us, choose an instrument, choose a different instrument. Fantastic. So it was just like, uh, I, honestly, I was just like, uh, I don't know, violin, maybe. So uh, I, I started the violin at the center. So I guess I was eight or nine years old, which is already a little bit late. Mm -hmm. And um, I think my first three years were a bit iffy. I didn't really have a teacher who was very serious. I didn't really get into it. And it was only at 12 years old when she hired a teacher called Racha Sabajan, mm -hmm. who was a new immigrant. And he had been teaching at, actually at the Moscow Conservatory. Mm -hmm. I'm, I'm not sure what the reasons why he came to Montreal, but he arrived here. And my mom met him and scooped him up and said, you're going to teach with us. And so it was really when I was 12 years old that it started the actual rigorous training that we mm -hmm. know to, to be able to get to a professional level. So I, was, I am eternally grateful for that because it allowed me to have the career that I had. Mm -hmm. yeah. So was it just a lot of etudes and scales right off the bat? Oh mm -hmm. yeah, he was, he was a taskmaster. I mean, it was, yeah, he started right away because I think I had, you know, I guess I had some kind of natural ability Obviously. and he saw that in me and he said, okay, if you're going to do this, mm -hmm. we're going to start now because you don't have any time to waste. Mm -hmm. So yeah, he was a taskmaster. I mean, books and books of etudes, the Shevchik, the, all the, you know, I had like six or seven books of technique pure and then of course we started on the Bach and the concertos and the it was it was quite something 
So I noticed um, that you competed a lot in music festivals when you were younger. Yeah. And then you ended up being on the, um, I don't know if you call it a judge, but one of the adjudicators for the Canadian yeah. music competition yeah. in 2014. Yeah. So what was it like being on the other side of that? Having yeah, it was beautiful. That was actually, I would say one of the highlights of my career was mm -hmm. doing that adjudication. It was with um, uh, Lana Henschel, who's an amazing pianist. She was teaching at the University of Calgary and Marc Bourdeau. Mm -hmm. So we actually toured Canada that year. We started in Vancouver and did all the provinces and listened to, my gosh, hundreds of kids play. Mm -hmm. And it was phenomenal. I mean, it was just a beautiful experience. I had participated in those competitions when I was a kid. And it was just so touching and so beautiful to hear these, the phenomenal talent that we have across this country. Mm -hmm. And to be able to see really like go literally coast to coast, you know, and meet people and, and just see the, the dedication of you know, not only the students, but the dedication of these amazing teachers. So that was, it was a beautiful, beautiful experience. And having to perform like that under pressure as a kid, like in those, cause you, um, how was that for you? Did you have nerves when you were younger? Uh, terrible, <laughs> terrible nerves. I've always had nerves. Well, you know how it is. I mean, yeah, but yeah. for me it was different. I didn't have very many opportunities to perform or at all so yeah. I, I, I kind of blame that as maybe that um, impacted me but maybe so I don't know it works yeah, in different ways. You've done so well you're such a beautiful player um I think my t okay so my teacher had he was really from the Russian school mm -hmm. okay so he basically said you have to perform every opportunity you had so he mm -hmm. would get these we'd be on these tv shows like this kind of tv talent shows here in montreal right and i was in this awkward teenage years so i said yes you know i'll do it but i kind of went a little bit you know there was a side of me that was shy about it you know i was in high school none of my friends did music mm -hmm. i was it was like this alter ego that i had right yeah so but i I guess there was a part of me and you know, he was such a strict teacher. Literally every second lesson, I would come home bawling mm -hmm. because he would, it was so, uh, so difficult, but there must have been a part of me that really wanted it and somehow knew in the back of my mind that if I want to do this, I have to go through this. Because my parents would say when I would come home crying and discouraged and say, I can't do it, they'd say, you can stop anytime, you know, you don't have to do this. But like I say, I think there was a part of me that said, um, I want this, I want this experience, so I will push through. And I pushed through and I'm really, really grateful because I got to meet incredible musicians like you and, you know, play with, with some of the best. Well, you've had a very interesting career because you've been, um, you've done tons of session work. Yeah. You play, you're assistant concertmaster of the ballet orchestra. You've, yeah. Um, tango groups. Yeah. What are some of the highlights looking back? Yeah. Well, I mean, you know, I really love that kind of being able to straddle those two worlds mm -hmm. of not only doing classical all the time, 
Um, I love being in the pop world. So we did a lot of, you know, cool gigs where we'd, you know, I'd be on stage with Pavarotti, be on stage with, uh, you know, Barbara Streisand. I mean, you know, I got to play at Céline Dion's um, first, her first child's baptism, you know? So it's, it was cool. We got to do all these cool things and I loved working in studio. Uh, but I always loved, you know, just being in an orchestra and that, that beautiful sound and, you know, you know that feeling of just being within this group of amazing musicians. I mean, I have to say one of the highlights was for me playing tango music mm-hmm. because I did get to play with some absolutely phenomenal musicians. So I played for years with this uh, Argentinian pianist, Victor Simon, mm-hmm. and we got to uh, do some amazing concerts all around. We traveled around and we recorded and that for me, for some reason, tango music was, I guess, I felt very at ease playing mm-hmm. that kind of music, maybe because there's almost a bit of a gypsy feel to it. Mm-hmm. And I felt it came very naturally to me. So you could be a little bit wild, didn't always have to be absolutely perfect. We're in the classical world, you know, every single note and uh, intonation wise is, is so precise. I think yeah. in the tango, you can be a little bit freer and just let yourself go. And you want a bit of edge too with tango. You need the edge. Yeah. yeah. You need the bit of wild. But, yeah. you know, if you're, you know, sometimes a couple of notes are a little bit off, it's not so bad. Mm-hmm. So it was really, yeah, it was, that was a blast. So um, I know you've done a bit of teaching over the years. So yeah. do, you, do you feel like you do things differently as a result of your experience with the strict? the way you were taught that you Yeah. Well, I think, I mean, I'm sure you know this too, that it's like how we raise our children a lot the way we were raised. Mm-hmm. I feel that teaching is a lot like that, that yeah. even it's subconscious sometimes, right? That I remember, you know, coming out of some of my lessons so upset and so angry with my teacher and saying, if I teach, I'm never, never going to teach like that, right? Mm-hmm. But unfortunately, I think I ended up with a lot of influence from my teacher, which are the good and the bad, right? Mm -hmm. I had the kind of idea of a bit of a rigorous training, which we know that we need on the violin. And um, yeah, I mean, sometimes in my teaching, maybe I was a bit strict, maybe I was a bit pushy, but I I had a good... um, almost 20 years of really solid teaching. And I didn't, I don't think I produced any major talents in the music world, but I know that years afterwards, uh, I have met former students. A lot of them are still playing um, in amateur orchestra. Mm -hmm. So a lot of them did continue actually playing the violin. I remember running into a mother of one of my students and she said, you were such a huge influence on my son. He so enjoyed playing the violin with you that he's a brain surgeon now. And all he listens to when he's doing his brain surgery are violin concertos. Wow. So I thought, you know, sometimes these relationships develop in a different way. Mm -hmm. And we don't always know the impact we have 
on our students. And I think sometimes we can touch people very profoundly. Yeah. There's actually an interesting link with, I find with uh, biomed and music. And Absolutely. A huge number of my huge. students have gone on. And actually some of the people I'm teaching now are doctors. Yes. <laughs> well, you know, it's funny you say that because when I was growing up, in Savajan's class, there was this superstar, okay? His name was Raymond Thibodeau. And I remember, uh, you know, I would just watch him play, like he'd play the 24 Caprices in one, one concert, right? One of those crazy guys who would do that. And he was just like, I mean, I idolized him. And everyone was saying, well, this is going to be the superstar. This is going to be the guy. And actually, I believe sometime in his 20s, he just switched and said, no, I'm becoming a doctor. Mm -hmm. And he became a doctor. I think he continued to play. But there is and you know, in here in Montreal, I don't know if in Ottawa, but there's actually an orchestra made up only of doctors. That is interesting. I think it's called I Medici or something or okay. Yeah, I believe that's the name. So they're all doctors. And they're all actually really amazing musicians. Mm -hmm. So these are people who could probably have gone on to a professional uh, music career. But yeah, it is certainly is interesting. It's interesting. And I think during this pandemic, um, we're speaking here uh, during this time, yeah. I think a lot of people have taken up music yeah. or for the first time or they're coming back to it. That's what I have noticed. Yeah. And it provides such a wonderful connection and solace and, and um, purpose, you know. Absolutely. But I think for people that are amateurs, they they don't have the pressure we have as professionals to be yeah. perfect. They can just enjoy, they can just play whatever. Yeah. And I think that's probably why, you know, a lot of people don't opt to go into music professionally because they they know like Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And sometimes we can be a little bit jealous of the amateurs. Yeah. And say if only we could always enjoy just and not have to think about uh you know, the money-making part of it, because it's hard, right? Mm -hmm. We know how, how it's not always easy and how somehow people have an idea that you, you do that as a career. You know, what, what is your real job, right? How many times were they asked, okay, well, you, you're a musician, but what's your real job? Mm -hmm. And uh, yeah, I think, I think it's wonderful. And I think that the more amateur, there's, there's a lot of high-level amateur um, groups out there because I think a lot of people are smart to say maybe I'm not going to push it to go to try the professional route. So in your family like did your mom have you guys singing together in harmony? Did you guys oh, jam? Yeah, yeah. yeah. We, we did a lot of singing. <laughs> I mean it was funny because she was the kind of mother who would say you know perform like she'd always push us to, to, to perform for at family gatherings and stuff. And we really didn't want to. But later in life, my sisters, we were three sisters in the middle. Mm -hmm. My eldest sister moved to China very young and spent most of her adult life in China. Mm -hmm. So the three sisters in the middle, we actually did have like a little singing group and we would sing uh, in harmony and mm -hmm. we'd, you know, play at different parties and stuff. Nothing ever professional, but we did do a lot of singing and your mom i want i think i'll put the link in the description of this video yeah. there's going to be links to your centre preville and all kinds of interesting things and your mom wrote a memoir that i really would like to read 
Yeah. So I'll put a link to that as well. It's a good book. It's mm. a good book. I think uh, <laughs> as most memoirs, I don't know, I haven't read that many memoirs. I haven't known the people who wrote the memoirs. Mm -hmm. But as I was part of this life, a lo large part of her life with her, you know, a lot of it is, it's not the way I remember things. So I think we say it's a memoir and it's fact, but at the same time, you know, memories are different. So, but it's a beautiful story. She wrote it beautifully. And she talks a lot about her, um, her childhood growing up, you know, she, um, she grew up in an Orthodox Jewish uh, community in, in Winnipeg. And her family was very tight. They were, um, her parents were immigrants from a shtetl in, I guess, Belarus, uh, mm -hmm. right? And they left at the beginning of the 20th century because of the pogroms, right? Yeah. The, like my family. <laughs> right. Yeah. Where was your family from? Um, well, different places um, like uh, Ukraine and Latvia yeah. and Belarus. So it's the same area. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And they must have come over about at the same time. Yeah, in the first 20 years of the 20th century. Right. Different people exactly. at different times. Yeah. Exactly. And they set up, uh, I know that the, the story is that they set up a kind of loan society. It was called the Propoisk Loan Society. And they would collect money from people who had come over and loan it out so that more people could just keep coming, right? Mm -hmm. So it was a very close-knit community. And uh, so she talks about her childhood. She talks about growing up in that and all the, the musical influences and the, and the cultural and the religious influences. Mm -hmm. And then how she really broke away from that because, you know, she married my dad. It's a very interesting story. We won't get too much into it. But my dad was born Protestant. Of course, he was Welsh. Mm -hmm. But my dad was a bit of a searcher, right? So he was lived in Europe uh, in his 20s, and he found the Gurdjieff movement. Mm -hmm. And so he, he really got into a lot of this mystical, religious, uh, spiritual path. And he converted to be a Muslim. Mm -hmm. So my mom, actually being a good Jewish girl, married a Protestant who converted to be a Muslim. Mm -hmm. So for my grandparents, that was, I mean, it was just so shocking, mm -hmm. right? But my dad is just such a great guy that they ended up accepting him. And growing up in our household, it was very uh, amazing and interesting because we actually celebrated all three religions. Mm -hmm. So we did celebrate Christmas but we also celebrated Hanukkah and we would also read the Quran. Mm -hmm. So in a way we got this kind of overview of all the great uh, Western religions. And uh, it was, it was interesting. Let's just say our, our conversations around the supper table were always quite interesting. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And the Salt of Préville, I, I was looking at the offerings. It's yeah. quite expansive. And I understand you have a really robust day camp that's starting yeah. up soon. So maybe yeah. you want to talk to us about that. Yeah. So um, the Centre d'Art de Préville, the Préville Fine Arts Centre, started almost, it'll be 50 years, I guess, soon. It's, mm -hmm. it's quite a, a long-standing institution here on the South Shore. 
of Montreal. So we're really in the suburbs here. And um, we started the day camp, I guess, about maybe 20 years, in, maybe not even 15 years in, you know, to the working of this, this school. And we kind of modeled the day camp after the, uh, the way we thought of the center. So we allow kids to have choices, right? So we, the kids get to choose four different activities during the day that they're at the camp. So they can choose to play drums, they can choose an art class, they can choose an outdoor uh, activities class, and they can choose a robotics class. Mm -hmm. So I think for a lot of people, this is very, I think for a lot of parents, it's super interesting because it's very stimulating. You know, it's fun. It's not like it's a crazy, crazy education camp. All of our programs are really designed to, to introduce kids, right? So it's an introduction to piano. And then you kind of get a feel for it. And if you want to continue, you can continue during the year. But uh, it's, yeah, so it's a very one-of-a-kind type of camp. Mm -hmm. And they get exposed to a lot of different things. So last year you were entirely online. This yeah. year, is it entirely in person? It's entirely in person. Okay. So we did the camp online last year because it actually was a really, really good thing for our organization to do that. Uh, we, yeah, sorry, I'm just getting messages mm -hmm. in. So yeah, we, we did it online because we had started when the pandemic hit, right? We were in the middle of our, basically our winter program. Mm -hmm. And we have this amazing guy who sits on our board, who's also very involved in our education. His name is Alex Soma. Mm -hmm. So he's a brilliant, brilliant programmer. And one of the reasons he's part of Preville was because when he was a teenager, he came to Preville on a bursary program and he claims it, it, you know, saved his, his life in a way because mm -hmm. he was a bit lost as a teenager and he found that by taking art and music, it was just this almost a therapeutic thing for him. Mm -hmm. And he's eternally grateful to the Preville Fine Arts Center for that. So he said, when the pandemic hit, let's just put all the classes online. So we started on what's called the Jitsi platform. This is an open source, kind of like Zoom, mm -hmm. but it's open source. Mm -hmm. So we gave all of our teachers their very own classroom, which could be open 24 hours a day. And so this, this started slowly. And we started introducing people to using these platforms. You know, at first, a lot of our students were like, no, we don't mm -hmm. want it. We only want to be in person. But as time went along, people started getting used to it. And in the spring, in about May, we had to take a decision. We weren't sure yet whether the government was going to allow summer camps. They finally decided they would, but the restrictions were so specific mm -hmm. that for us as a as a music camp where people are touching things and using paint brushes and we just said it it won't be possible it'd be so crazy for us so we said let's take this opportunity and put everything online so our partners at robot in a can built this phenomenal virtual school for us okay so it's a bit like zoom but actually it's not so you come into the school, you come into the lobby, and there are people hanging out in the lobby, and you have a whole list of classrooms that are on a menu bar. Mm -hmm. 
-hmm. And you can jump from one classroom to another without leaving the school. Once you're in the school, you have one password and that's it. So we just thought, we're going to try this. It was brand new for everybody, but it was wildly successful because what we had is not only could the kids easily go from one class to another, but the teachers were collaborating together. So teachers would come to the lobby and say, hey, have you seen this teacher? And they say, well, go to the classroom. And they just basically jump from one virtual classroom to another. So someday, Leah, I would love to show you our platform because it is really one of a kind. And most educators who see this platform say, we need that, mm -hmm. right? Because it just simplifies everything and makes things so much easier and more accessible. So as, after the first week of camp, it was just second nature to be in this space, right? Mm -hmm. And people were collaborating and kids were, and we were seeing, you know, it's pretty amazing. Like little kids would come in for their class in the morning and sometimes they'd come back in the afternoon just to hang out in the lobby and do their artwork because there was people in the lobby having a jam session or something. So it was a really, really cool feeling. And what we said after that summer camp is we are going to, you know, have our private lessons. We're going to continue everything. Everything had to be virtual, but we're going to start an online school mm -hmm. because we think that people are still going to want to take certain classes online. So we worked like dogs. And I have to say, I just have to mention, because you know her very well, Heather, Heather mm -hmm. Schnarr, our good friend. She came on in the spring, mm -hmm. in May, and she has just been phenomenal through this process. We worked together with another one of our colleagues, Maria Gasesa, and we built these programs and we put them online and we took the chance. And we now have a super successful online school and we will be going back to our in-person school in September. So we'll always have these two streams mm -hmm. going along. That's wonderful. And you have programs for special needs? Yeah. yeah. Yeah, we have, we started programs for special needs, young adults. There was a group that was here that we were already kind of connected to. Mm -hmm. And we said, let's start, you know, let's just try the online thing. So we actually had a teacher from Vancouver. Mm -hmm. Her name is Karen Nato. Uh, just phenomenal. So she had one online class. We had one of our dance teachers who was offering an online dance class. So this has developed incredibly rapidly. So I just want to plug a little bit because what we're doing now is absolutely phenomenal. And if anybody wants to learn more of what we're doing, so we started getting in touch. Well, actually people started coming to us. Mm -hmm. So the first group that um, came to us was the Maison Internationale Rive-Sud. So this is um, an organization for new immigrants to help them, you know, find their way. So they were saying, could we, could we get some activities for our, our, you know, our members? A lot of them are isolated. These were older people who were stuck in their homes. Mm -hmm. So we started an online art class for them. They loved it so, so much. We provided them with tablets so Kindle Fires that were pre-programmed 
we would deliver it to them with their art supplies and they just had to one click and they were in the school mm -hmm. and it was one of the most beautiful programs so after that we started working with we're now working with three different school boards so one of the CLCs, a community learning center approached us, said, look, we have a grant. We have a literacy program that we would usually do in person. We can't do it in person. Can we do it online? So with the Riverside School Board, we developed this program where families together were doing painting classes. They were doing, um, they were doing poetry classes. They were doing reading literacy, English literacy, and they were doing robotics. Mm -hmm. And our robotics program is one of the most amazing around. So we do robot in a can, which is a little can that you get your robot in. The robot is made of recycled materials. They work with the teachers. They um, program the robot with their computer. They can make it move. They do all, it's, it's just phenomenal what they mm -hmm. do. So from there, we said, let's get in touch with other school boards. So right now we have workshops, virtual workshops running at the Lester B. Pearson uh, school board because people were looking for cultural events, but they couldn't do them in person. So we mm -hmm. said, well, we've got these virtual events. But I think what is the most touching of all was we've been in touch with two First Nations communities. Mm -hmm. So the first one that we started partnering with is Kitikan Zibi, mm -hmm. which is actually about an hour and a half from Ottawa. Mm -hmm. And we offered a bead weaving class with one of their, uh, one of the members of their community, Craig Commanda, mm -hmm. who's studying here in Montreal at Concordia University. He said, I will teach this class. So a bead weaving class online with people, we had one lady taken from Alberta, we had some ladies from Montreal, and we had some ladies from the Kitikan Zibi Reserve. Then we made our, our what, what we're doing right now actually, and today was one of the last days of the classes, was a partnership with Rapid Lake. Now Rapid Lake School is about four hours north of Gatineau, and we said, would you guys be interested in having some classes? They have been basically isolated for more than a year. And they said yes. So we had Heather actually delivered art kits, robotics kits. And we have classes going on there now. And it is one of the most amazing experiences. I know for those kids, but for our teachers as well. Mm -hmm because these are a really, really special group of people. The teachers have been working closely with us. And this is something we are really, really planning to expand on, is really go to visit more of these communities who need, um, they need connection, right? It's not always easy to have the connection in person because they're far away, but we want the connection virtually and open the world up to them. So the robotics class that we had in Rapid Lake, our robotics teacher was actually in Mozambique. So the kids were in Rapid Lake, 
They were on our platform and the teacher was teaching them from Mozambique. What's the time difference? So the time difference is six hours. Oh, it's not too bad. Okay. So already the kids were saying, wow, where's Mozambique? So the first class, the teacher said, go to your map. I'm going to show you where I am. And then they said, what time is it there? Mm. And he said, it's four o'clock in the afternoon. And it was 10 o'clock for them. And they were, what? <laughs> so for us, it blows our mind because it just opens the world up, mm -hmm. right, to, to these uh, to these kids. It, it can bring them so much closer to so many more special educators, just beautiful artists around the world. Mm -hmm. So this is really something we're going to be concentrating on for the next few years. Your mom would have been so proud. Well, she's there. She's around. She's making, yeah. making things happen. Yeah. Well, thanks so much for this conversation. Everything's going to be linked and um, yes. that's, that's just so great, all, all the work you're doing. Really, that's really enjoyed really. it. Well, thanks, Leah, for inviting me. It's so great. And hope to see you in person sometime Definitely. soon. <laughs> okay. Thanks. So here I am with Veronica Thomas, and we're going to try a little improv back and forth. You want me to start? Yeah, you start. Oh, okay. I think that's a beautiful way to finish. <laughs> Thanks, that was really fun. That was cool. Thanks, Leah. Season one of this podcast had 20 episodes, and season two continues with a really interesting mix of musicians talking about their lives and careers with perspectives on overcoming challenges, finding inspiration and connection through a life so enriched with music. Please follow this podcast wherever you listen to podcasts to be informed about each new episode.